Well, good morning, church. I, uh, I promised myself and others that I wouldn't mention a certain game from a week ago, and I'm not going to talk about the game. I just want to tell you how short-lived my experience of joy was. My wife talked my youngest daughter, Reese, and I into wearing 49ers merchandise and taking a picture and then posting it on Facebook, which was not something Reese or I wanted to be a part of. Well, we lost that battle. We lose every picture battle in our house. But so as you might imagine, there were all kinds of different comments that were made on that picture. And so after the game was over, Lauren was reading those comments to Reese because Reese was curious. And she, she gets to one comment, and Reese says, who's Glenda Heath? That was one of the names of the people who commented. And I said, well, that's my sixth grade teacher. And her jaw dropped, and she said, she's still alive? <laughs> Like it was a scientific impossibility <laughs> that my sixth grade teacher could be walking the face of the earth. Don't tell Glinda. Five seconds of joy. Okay. So uh, last week we focused on Jesus' encounter with various different situations where people were hurting and suffering. And we spent a majority of the sermon focusing on an interaction that Jesus had with a man who was suffering from leprosy, who kind of breaks all the rules to get close enough to Jesus to ask for healing. And he says, if if you're willing, if you want to, I know that you can help me. I know that you can make me clean. And Jesus has this really strange response where he's angry. But that anger is not destructive anger. It's not toxic anger. It's an anger that leads to compassion. He's angry at what this disease has stolen from this man. He's angry at the fact that the community surrounding him hadn't found a way, hadn't been creative enough, hadn't used their imagination enough to help him not suffer in loneliness for, for who knows how long. And we talked about the fact that so often in our own experiences, anger only leads to toxic or destructive behavior. And so we tend to run from those those thoughts and those feelings that we have when we see someone hurting or we see a situation and we know it's wrong. We know someone has to do something. But if we always shield ourselves from that anger, there's going to be a lot of opportunities, a lot of situations where we just don't find the motivation to do something about it. And Jesus channels his anger so that he does something about it. And, and I want us to be those kinds of people. I, I don't want us to be known for a kind of anger that, that forces our way on other people or a kind of anger that makes other people feel threatened. I want us to be a community where when we see something that we know just isn't right, we find what it takes 
to do something about it. Right? Now, we're going to continue this morning, and we're, we're going to find that throughout Mark, Jesus is, is going to keep having these kinds of moments, and increasingly, that anger isn't only going to be directed at the fact that people are suffering. He's going to start to get angry with the religious leaders who just don't care. And that's where it's going to start to get even more uncomfortable. So let's read together in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. I, I love this, right? They're, they're trying to see if they can sneak a peek of Jesus secretly doing something good, and Jesus says, hey, stand up in front of everyone. I want everyone to get a good look, right? He's not sneaking around. Stand up in front of everyone. Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to, excuse me, to kill. But they remained silent. You remain silent when you know that any response you're going to give is going to cause you to lose the argument. Right? They remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. Now, verse 6 has a lot going on there that might catch your attention. But in the first century, what you would have noticed is it would be like saying, then the Republicans went out and began to plot with the Democrats how they might kill Jesus. Like these two groups don't go together. They don't work together. And so you'd be suspicious about what's going on, okay? Now, I want us to focus on this phrase. That the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, when we think about the the Ten Commandments, and for the most part in, in the churches of Christ... This is going to sound a little cynical, but hey, it's me. Uh, We tend to only reach back into the Old Testament to win arguments. We don't use it for much else. We're New Testament people, right? We, We might have some use in the Old Testament where there's prophets talking about a Messiah, and so that leads us to the New Testament. But when it comes to the laws... They are super optional unless we're applying them to someone else. 
right? Am I, okay. What's interesting to me is of the Ten Commandments, the one growing up I had the least interest in was the Sabbath. You know, it just felt like focusing on the wrong day of the week. Saturday, I don't really care much about Saturday, not nearly as much as I care about Sunday as, as a New Testament Christian. So it always felt like, what is that? And then, you know, as a kid especially, I mean, one of the hardest things was to sit and do nothing. And the Sabbath is 24 hours of that. And it's like, how in the world does that matter? And, and how in the world does that honor God? But here's what's interesting. If you go back and into the Old Testament to read the Ten Commandments, guess which commandment gets the most words describing its importance? The Sabbath. Now, I think there's two reasons for that. We're not the first people to question why it matters. Right? You don't have to explain, don't murder. Everybody goes, yeah, good one. Don't commit adultery. Yeah, got that. Sabbath, what? Right? So on, on one hand, I think God's needing to make the argument. On the other hand, I think it helps us understand why it really does matter. And I think, brothers and sisters, we live increasingly in a world where one of the ways we could be different is to carve out space to not do anything productive or or constantly doing something that we can, can feel like would impress other people with what we've accomplished. We just have some period of time every week where we just rest in the presence of God and we believe that, that we're enough. Right? I think there's a deep wisdom to the Sabbath. So I, I don't want to just cast it aside and say it has no relevance. I think, in fact, it could have a lot of relevance. Uh, rele- I can't talk. Relevance. But here's the thing. You can take anything good, and if your intentions are less than good, you can ruin it. And somewhere along the line, keeping the Sabbath got to the point where it was primarily, I think, about various rabbis in public winning arguments about what you were and weren't allowed to do. And it was incredibly narrowly defined and limited to the point where they're not wrong when they say that it's technically against Sabbath law, first of all, to travel far away from your home which they're doing, they're walking through the fields, and even if you're hungry. Now, you're allowed to pluck grains of head, according to the law, when you're hungry and you don't own land, and you know there's always these laws that are written to try to take care of the least of these in Israel. You're allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to do it on the Sabbath. So these guys aren't theologically wrong when they talk about what they believe when it comes to understanding how narrow life is supposed to be on the Sabbath every week. You're not supposed to do these things. Now, it may be easy for us to read this story and think, well, why, why are the disciples doing that? You know, can't, can't they eat in a way that's acceptable on the Sabbath? And I, 
if you listen to how Jesus moves from their argument to a different argument from Scripture, which is about David and his companions being hungry, I'm going to say they're picking heads of grain on the Sabbath because they're hungry. They're not snacking, in other words. They're hungry. And, and Jesus is saying there's a spirit to the law of the Sabbath that overrides the letter of the law. You are technically right, but you are practically wrong. People matter more than rules. Now, it's always easier to be the one saying that than to be the person hearing someone else say it. Because immediately you start to wonder, okay, which rules are you going to decide still matter and which rules are you going to say don't matter? And I'm fine with this concept if I'm the one making those decisions. I'm a little uneasy if you're the one making that decision. Jesus says, now you're technically right, but you're practically wrong because if someone's hungry, I don't care how they get the food. I don't care whether or not it fits with our understanding of how they're allowed to get the food. We need to find a way to feed them when they're hungry. There is a law that supersedes all other laws. It's the law of love. Well, it's not just that struggle that happens, right? Because you move straight from that, and Mark shows us this man with a, a shriveled hand, and all these people are together, and it's the Sabbath, and they're just seeing if they can, they can find him making a mistake again, as far as they're concerned. And like I said, it is so funny to me that it says they're, they're watching closely to see if they can catch Jesus, and Jesus is like, nah, -uh, we're, we're doing this. <laughs> Stand up. And what he helps us understand, I think right at the beginning of this particular interaction with the religious leaders, is it's real simple for him, and it's simple in a way that I think can be real complicated for us. When Jesus sees someone in need, he feels the need to do something. It's that straightforward. And he doesn't wait around long enough for his brain to come up with justifiable reasons for why he doesn't need to, to do something. Now, obviously, when I say do something, I mean do something that it's within our ability to do. And Jesus clearly has abilities to do things that, that you and I, at some level, can only dream about. But there are other things that we are able to do that we still come up with reasons why we don't need to do them. Surely I can't be the only person who, who does this, where I see somebody in need and I start to construct a story about them that justifies why I'm not going to help them. 
either I don't have the time or I don't have the resources or they're not going to do the right thing with it or they've, they've messed up before and so I don't want to help them, right? And it's, it's reasonable. And I think Jesus would say, you're technically right, but you're practically wrong. <laughs> and it, I, I'll just be honest with you this morning, not that I'm not always trying to be honest with you. I've done it before, and I'm going to do it again. So the question becomes, why am I comfortable with coming down on the other side of this than Jesus? And I think it's because, even though I would never say this out loud to myself, I think I know better than he does how to treat people, and what, what's worthwhile and what isn't, and who is worthwhile and who isn't. For Jesus, there is no middle ground. Choosing not to do something good, the good that we can do, is choosing to do something evil. I like middle ground. I'm constantly trying to find middle ground. Jesus says, no. You live your life, you're, you're moving through the world, you come across all kinds of situations, and you have to, to ask yourself, what good can you do? And once it's clear to you what good you're able to, to offer to that situation, you need to do it. And if you don't do it, something is happening, and it's not good. It's the opposite of good, in fact. It's evil. Now, I'm pretty sure that nobody sees what they do as evil. It's always easier to see what someone else is doing or, or failing to do and call that evil. But when it comes to me and my life and, and my sense of things, I, I don't think I have the courage and the honesty in my soul to admit that there are times that I see clearly the good I could do and I walk away from it. And that does something, not only to the person we don't help, but it does something to us. And it does something to our world. And Jesus says there's a different way where you shape your heart and your soul so that when you realize the good you can do, you find a way to do it. Another way to think about it is this. Having a hard heart can be every bit as dangerous as having a hate-filled heart. Having a heart that's numb to the suffering of other people Having a, a heart that runs away from complicated situations where there isn't any real clear, easy answer of exactly what to do. And I am concerned that if we're not clear about it, if, if our hearts aren't open to, to the truth, it's not just that, that we can become hard-hearted people without realizing it, I, I think the way we have constructed religion 
can lead us to being hard-hearted people who feel justified in it. And I'm not saying we ever intend for our religion to give us the reasons why we don't have to help people. I'm just saying it happens. If it could happen to these, these religious leaders in the, in the first century, you know it could happen to us. You know it does happen. My, uh, my dad grew up in a, a really difficult home in a lot of ways. And by the time I was really old enough to figure that out, virtually all of my dad's siblings, so all of my you know, aunts and uncles on his side, were uh, in one way or another uh, abusing the welfare system in California uh, and could not manage to find a way to stay sober and were constantly calling my dad for help. And I don't know how this happens, but at 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, I had a hard heart towards my own family because of what I I saw would happen to my dad when his brother called for the 20th time for money again or for my dad to go out and bail him out of jail again. I mean, I remember we had a, we invited my cousins over for Christmas and one of them wrote down, we found this note that he he was kind of acting weird holding this, this piece of paper and my dad took it away from him. He had cased our house. He had listed every expensive thing we had in our house and was going to come back later and steal from us. And I remember right around the time, um, I don't know how to say this. <laughs> I'll, no, I, it's, <laughs> it's not that. Um, when my voice changed, I don't know how else to say it. It's kind of goofy. But when I stopped sounding like my mom and I sounded more like my dad on the phone when I picked up, I remember one particular time, I sound, I, I, I don't know if you've ever got to, to visit with my dad. I sound exactly like him. And so my aunt called and I picked up the phone and she started into whatever sob story she was going to tell my dad and I said, I'm not helping you this time. And I hung up. Yeah, I never got in more trouble. (laughs) And then I got that afternoon. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen years old, I'd had enough. And I would love to tell you that that hardness of heart only extended to my dad's side of the family, but it didn't. It grew beyond that. I, I remember a, a particular time that this guy stopped by the church where my dad was working. I was probably 16, 17 years old at this point. This guy asked, you know, to see the pastor. And he had this whole story he told my dad, and I, I happened to be around, and I heard it, and I'd heard the, the basic beats of that story over and over and over again, and I was cynical about it, and I felt like, surely my dad's not going to fall for this. 
we get to the point where the guy even feeling nervous that my dad not, might not give him money that he wants ends up asking to be baptized. You know, so I'm involved that afternoon in a baptism with a guy that I don't believe really means it. That Sunday, my dad gets a note, like two songs before the sermon. Somebody walks up and gives him a note and says, there's a guy out back that wants you to have this note, and he wants you to get it before you preach. And I, my dad let me see this note later. It was this, it was the guy that had spent the whole afternoon with us, and he told my dad what an idiot he was for believing him, and then listed all the things he bought with the money that my dad had given him to pull his life together. All the drugs, all the alcohol, all the stuff. And said, I want you to get this before you preach so you know what an idiot you are preaching to a bunch of idiots. And I will never forget. I was shaking reading that note, man. And my dad said to me, we did the right thing anyway, son, and I would do it again. What is wrong with my dad? <laughs> I, I don't think we decide to become hard-hearted. I just, I just think it starts to happen to us, and it, I think it feels easier and, and maybe even like it makes more sense to us and we start to paint the world and every one around us with this suspicion and this confidence that we know better than they do and that maybe they need help but someone else can be the sucker this time. Christians should be people who have tender hearts. They should be people who know they're running the risk of being taken advantage of and they try to help anyway. Because it's not just about what our help produces in the life of someone else. It's, it's what it does to us when we either run away from that opportunity or we embrace it. It's the miracle that could happen inside of us if we would learn to care more about people than outcomes, if we would, would care about people more than how well they follow the rules that we want them to or they jump through the hoops that we've set up for them. We come up with all kinds of logical, rational-sounding reasons why we don't need to have a heart that's broken for the things in our world that break God's heart. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you can't have a hard heart and stay close to God's heart. I didn't say God's heart can't chase after you, but you're running. You don't know it, but you're running. I don't know it, but I'm running. And something has to wake us up. And it's got to be the hurting people around us that wake us up again. We were not created to notice other people's pain and explain why we're too busy or why there's some reason we don't have to do anything. We weren't made to be people who push others away. 
and use in this case, and this is what's so convicting to me in all of these interactions with Jesus and the religious leaders. They believe they're right. They're not playing some game where they know they're wrong and they're just trying to be the bad guys in the story anyway. That's, they don't think they're the bad guys in the story. They're convinced they have Scripture on their side. They do have Scripture on their side. And Jesus says, I understand it more than you do. I helped write it. <laughs> and you may be technically right, but you are practically wrong. When we find a way to help, I think we also find a way to heal. And I don't mean uh, that our help is only healing to that other person. I mean, when we find a way to cut through the excuses and we actually do the good thing we can do, it starts to mend our hard hearts. It heals us. You want to know what changed for me when it came to thinking of people who are less fortunate and, and trying to have a soft place in my heart again? It was actually a pretty small moment. I mean, when you think about the years of kind of building up that hard heart, it, it unlocked pretty quickly. I was in a staff meeting at a, at a church. It was not this church, uh, not these people, not this, not this ministry staff. I want to be clear about that. But I was at the staff meeting, and uh, one of the, the ministers, we're going around the table talking about, you know, things we've got to work on that we can deal with. One of the ministers says, and clearly very angry and irritated, that, Someone had left a door unlocked at church that Sunday night, and someone had gotten into the building and had eaten all of our communion supplies. All of them. And he said, I want to press charges. I have a feeling I know who it is. I want to press charges. You don't steal from a church. And that minister was me. No, it wasn't me. <laughs> uh, and I remember looking at him and seeing a part of myself in him. And then I said this to him, and I don't know where it came from. And he was mad at me for a while. But I said, how can you steal something that's freely given? You can't steal communion. It's impossible. I mean, first off, have you ever been hungry enough to drink that much grape juice and eat that much bad cracker? Like, I try to put yourself in that person's shoes. Like, that's not how I would, you know, try to keep going. But on a deeper level, you can't steal what's freely given. And shouldn't our lives be freely given to people who are hurting? We cannot withhold the good we can do 
and think that that's not going to be corrosive to our souls. When we withhold the good we can do, it does something bad to us. It doesn't only cause that other person to suffer. It doesn't only make our world filled with more people who, who don't see Christian people in the light that, that I see us, right? That we're imperfect people who are trying our best and the good that we do, it's just the moments that we actually allow God to shine through us and I'm thankful for that. And so many of the, the good things in my life have only come to me through the church. And I get defensive when I hear non-church people taking shots at the church. But let me tell you something, One of the ways that we can help other people see Christ in us, even if they don't know that's what they're seeing, is we stop constructing fine-sounding arguments for why we don't need to do the kind, compassionate thing to people who are hurting. We need to decide right now that we're going to do what we can to help people And it's impossible for them to take advantage of us because it's grace and it's freely given and it doesn't matter. Every time I open up the Gospels, every time I walk alongside of Jesus, I realize how much I love who Jesus is and how much I don't really want to be like him that I'm not ready to be like him. And this world is starving for people to be more like him. We're gonna sing together now. uh, And as we do, our shepherds and their spouses are gonna stand by these three double door exits. They're there to talk with you, to pray with you, to meet with you. So if you came this morning and you have any concerns at all that you'd like to share with a Christian couple, you want to be prayed over, uh, if you want to know more about our church, if you want to know more about committing to following in the way of Jesus, whatever it is, please go to those couples as together we stand and sing.